Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Tonight, it's good to be back, by the way. It's been, we've had a bit of a break. We've had a, we've had a baby, Imogen, who's in the back corner there. Jasmine might hold her up for us. There she is. Woo! Look at that. She has a general look of disdain most of the time, um, which is exciting. <laughs> but so that's been a good, good fun few weeks. But it's good to be back. And um, we're going to go back to the book of Esther tonight. It's been a while. We started a series and then thought, what better way to run consistently through a series than take a seven-week break from that series and then jump back in in the middle of winter. So we're, we're back in the book of Esther um, in chapters five and six tonight. I'll give us a brief recap before Elliot comes and does the Bible reading because I thought if he just jumps straight into the middle of the story, it might be a bit like, what is going on? So we are in about five to 600 BC. Uh, we're in the empire of Babylon specifically in the capital city, a place called Susa. And the book of Esther follows the story of a few key characters. We have Esther. We have her cousin Mordecai. They are Jews and they are not in the homeland of Jerusalem. They are a long way away. They've been scattered. They've been sort of spread out um, over the known world, the Jews. And Esther and Mordecai find themselves here in Babylon, chronologically, this is one of the last sort of books that tells about the events of the Old Testament. It's not the last one in your Old Testament, but it's pretty much the end of the historical things that happen, and then it's a bunch of prophecy. Um, So to jump into the story, there's this king, the king of Persia, and his name is Xerxes. I like to call him Jerxes because that's what he is. Come on, that was a little bit funny. All right. Dad jokes, right? I can do them now. Um, And Xerxes holds this banquet. And it's a banquet. It goes for many, many months. And the purpose of the banquet is to show everyone how magnificent he is. Um, And so he holds this big banquet. And towards the end of the banquet, him and a bunch of his advisors, his mates, the people that he's got around him, get drunk. And in their drunkenness, Xerxes goes, I've got a great idea. Let's bring my wife in to parade her in front of all of these drunk men because the the women were having a separate banquet to the men. And Vashti, which is the name of Xerxes' wife, was like, no thanks. And that's the end of her in the story. And Xerxes was upset um, and he banished her. She was never to come into his presence again. And more than that, he took on the advice of the people around him to put in a law that every woman in the whole empire was to obey and submit to their husband in every single thing that he wanted. He was like, nah, my wife, she's an example for all the women. So if she's not willing to do what I want, then no one is going to have their own mind in this. Women, you have to fully submit and obey your husband. So that's kind of where Xerxes is very um, persuadable, we'll say. A few years later, the story skips and Xerxes is sad. He's like, oh, I need a queen. 
And so once again, he's like, who do I ask for advice? So it says he gathers, gathers the young men of the court and says, how do I get a queen? And they come up with this plan and they gather hundreds and hundreds of young women, virgins into the king's harem. And they are there to be made beautiful. They go through these uh, months and months of treatments until, they, until the day where the king decides to call them in. This is not a particularly nice story. It's not, in Sunday school, it's, very, it's portrayed as very romantic. It's not. It's gross. And so Esther, she's this Jewish girl. And she gets caught up in this. She gets brought into the harem. And it says that while she's there, she earns favour. Um, and part of that is probably because she was very beautiful, but part of that is also because of the way she conducted herself in there. And she ended up in a position of reasonable um, influence in this harem, which is like, I guess, the place where all the, all the women were. And after a few years of her being in that place, she gets called in for her night with the king. And it says in the word that Xerxes loved Esther more than all of the others. So he kind of, I guess, fell in love with her. I don't know if it was reciprocal. It didn't really matter back then. Um, but Xerxes chooses Esther, this Jewish girl, to become queen. So Esther is now the queen or one of the queens of Babylon. And uh, while she's in this situation, her uncle Mordecai ends up overhearing a plot. There's some men, they want to assassinate the king. Xerxes, uh, Mordecai is in the right place at the right time. He hears about this plot. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king and the assassination is stopped. And that's great. Xerxes forgets about it. Later on in the story, this is jumping ahead a bit, a man named Haman. Everyone say Haman. I like it. It's like, hey, man. He rises to second in command of the kingdom and he hates the Jews. He hates them. He particularly hates Mordecai because Mordecai never bows and grovels to Haman, whereas everyone else kind of bows to him because he's second in command, but Mordecai's like, I'm not bowing to you. So he doesn't. And Haman comes up with this law. He kind of convinces the king that there's these people in your kingdom that are terrible, they're evil, they're going to cause all these problems. And Xerxes is like, oh, let's get rid of them. And Haman's like, oh, it's the Jews, sign here. And he does. And so there's this decision that in, I think it's 10, 11 months' time, the Jews will be destroyed with violence. Mordecai fasts and prays. The Jews who are in that place fast and pray. And Mordecai goes to his cousin Esther, who is the queen. And they have this famous conversation. And he says, who knows, maybe you've become queen for such a time as this. But if you don't save the people, they will be saved in another way. That's my paraphrase. And Esther, where we left the story at the end of chapter four, she's like, all right, well, I'm going to, can you all pray and fast? And I'm going to go in to the king. And if I perish, I perish. So she's convicted. She makes this decision. I'm going to go and I'm going to try and save my people. Elliot, take it from there.
So, Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. That night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done with for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe, the king is worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. 
get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Whew, what a story. Take that, Haman. God's got a plan. The book of Esther, as I love to say, is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God and yet we can see his hand at work thoroughly in the story. This, these chapters here, five and six, they're the middle of the story. They represent the turning point for God's people, the turning point for the Jews. There's moments here where it looks like things are not going to go so well for the Jews and then all of a sudden Mordecai is honoured. The plans of the wicked will not prosper. And we see here that Haman starts to come undone. He's so proud that he can't see the truth of what's happening to him and around him. So what do we do with this story? What do we do with this two and a half thousand, two and a half thousand years old story about a Jewish girl becoming a queen and saving people in an exotic land a long way away? And that's a good question to ask. What do we do with this story? Today I want to look at the way that God's people respond the way that God's people respond to the challenges that they're faced and the way that God is always working. Because the same God that Mordecai and Esther fasted and prayed before is the same God that we believe in today. The same. And he has always had a plan he has always had a plan to save his people. And again and again and again, the story of Scripture is unfaithful people being saved by a faithful, good God. And is that not our story as well? So tonight we're going to look at a few things. The first thing I want to look at is the fact that in this story, and I think as a generalized thing, God's people are patient, not panicked. So Esther and Mordecai, the heroes of this story, have this plan to save the Jews. And the way they enact it is careful, it's slow. They don't rush. Esther doesn't rush in to the king and demand her people get saved. She doesn't, even though she gets him in a banquet and he says, I'll give you anything, even half the kingdom, she still doesn't even jump then. She waits we don't know why she waits because it doesn't tell us. But the fact is she does wait. She's patient. 
And I think in our lives, we want things now, do we not? We're not very patient. We serve a God who has always had a long-term plan for humanity, who is abundantly patient with his people. And yet we see our lives, our 60, 70, 80 years, 90 if we're lucky, as the sort of pinnacle. It's the most important time is the time now where I'm alive. And sorry to burst the bubble. God's plan is so much bigger than our lifetimes. And that should give you relief. Because he's so patient. I think sometimes we might have this sense of where God wants to take us in life. And sometimes, you know, I know this happened for me when I was in youth group and, um, you know, you might have someone come up and say, oh, I think God's going to do this in your life and I see this in your future. And that, that's really encouraging, but can also, on the one hand, fill you with anxiety because you're like, oh no, like if I don't do that thing, I've missed something. I've missed out on what God has wanted to do in my life. I've missed, you know, the point. And then we're always looking for that exact thing that that 17-year-old youth leader said to us that they meant really well and they, they probably were, may even been, have been right. But we fill ourselves with anxiety and we panic instead of sitting in patience and trusting that if God wants to do something, he'll actually do it. And there's a lot to be said for patience. I'm going to emphasize this a lot and you're going to, yep, yeah, I get it. Be patient. Everything in the way that our culture is geared tells us not to be patient. Everything about it. There is no value placed on waiting. They've got rid of like, you don't, at McDonald's now, you just go straight up to the computer. You don't even have to wait in a line, which is probably, you know, maybe not so with patience, but like we're, we're just so used to having everything at our fingertips. And now if I want something, I can just buy it. You can just order it. And God doesn't work like that. And that causes us to get panicked. Because we're so used to having everything now that when God doesn't do what we think he should do now, we think he's missed us. Are you hearing this? So some of us in the room are worried that we've missed out on what God's doing because we've had to wait. Because we've had to work hard through things. We've had to trust a process. Because in a world where everything is now, it's so hard to be patient. And yet God says in the word that patience is one of the things he will put in us. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's one of the things that a believer can expect to grow in them. So are you panicked or are you patient? It's a real challenge. It's, it's really hard to be patient. And I think it's, it's only getting harder with the way our society is geared, the way, I mean, I was a high school teacher, the way we're taught, what we're told to expect in life. When those things don't happen, we just, we feel like we've missed out. It's a challenge to be patient when we wait for friendships to deepen. Because there's this yearning in us to connect 
and we think, oh, I don't feel connected. There must be something wrong with me. Instead of just trusting that these things take time. It's a challenge to have patience when we are unhealthy. Because we think, well, I'm unhealthy and I've been unhealthy for a long time and I shouldn't be unhealthy. It's hard to be patient in that. It's hard to be patient when we want to desperately know what God has for our lives and we're not seeing a clear picture. That's hard. It's hard to be patient in that. It's hard to be patient with church when it's not exactly to our preferences and tastes. Our Father in heaven is not panicked. Our Father in heaven is not in a rush. He's urgent, but he's not anxious. He's patient, he's persistent, and he's consistent. And the only way that we can grow in our patience, and I'm not talking about being patient in a line, you know that. We're talking about the big things. The only way we can grow to be more patient is by looking to Jesus, is by the work of the Holy Spirit, by trusting that God's timing is best, by trusting that even if there's things that we desperately want to see in our lifetime, that we might not, and that that's okay, because God is in control, and God has a plan, and God's plan is good. We submit to God's ways, his timings, and his truth. In Isaiah 55, God is speaking and he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He's just kind of making the point that he is not us and we are not him. And so when we put our expectations for what should or shouldn't happen in the timing that it should or shouldn't happen on a God who is nothing like us and is ultimately good and loving and therefore what he does is good and loving, when we put those expectations on him, we will end up being very disappointed and probably panicked. But I say God's people are patient, not panicked, to call you to that. I know we don't always feel these things. But there is a process and a plan that has been in place since the garden. And it culminates in another garden that Jesus has been working for all time. So in patience, let's just trust God and let's hear what else he's got to say. We're going to come back to that in a minute. The second thing I just want to point out that I noticed quite strongly in the story is that, is that God's people are humble, not proud. And we can look at Haman and very obviously see how proud he is. He surrounded himself with the people that he boasts them. They agree with him. Yeah, you're so good, Haman. He's like, I am so good. This is great. And he's so proud that he can't see what's going to happen because I think proud people expect the world to work out for them 
And when it doesn't work out for him, he's like his whole worldview is destroyed. He's distraught. He couldn't see his downfall coming. And pride's ultimately always been the enemy of the church. Pride was the original sin and it continues to be the sin that we commit that leads to, I think, most or all other sins. Because pride ultimately is this thing that says, I, a human, know best. I, a mere man, know more than the creator God. I know more about myself, I know more about others, I know more about the world, and what I think should happen should happen. James, in James chapter 4, he kind of starts to unpack this pride idea and he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but you do not have, so you kill. You covet what you cannot get. Hang on. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes, becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? He gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So pride in a community causes fights and quarrels. It causes covetousness. It causes a community to actually be in opposition to God. God opposes the proud. Ooh. I don't want to be in opposition to God. But I also think I'm right most of the time. So that's a challenge. Pride does what Haman did and it surrounds itself with people who agree. And we do this. We create this echo chamber of our life of self-congratulation, self-infatuation and self-inflation. And there's a call here to put off sin which stems from pride and humble ourselves before our holy God. When we were looking at the book of Ephesians, we were talking about a Christian community is marked by its humility, which is the opposite of entitlement. And I think the people of God are humble because ultimately we know that without God we are nothing. John Stott says, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see the cross as something done by us. Our sin, our pride, nailed Jesus to a tree. And until we can reconcile with that, then we can't see the incredible extravagant length of grace. We can't see the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love that the Father has for us because we think that we don't need it. The Father loves you. I've just... I've got a, a child now, a daughter. And when I saw her and just kind of every time I look at her, I'm just like, oh my goodness. I love this little pooping, sleeping thing. 
This is the best thing that has ever existed. There's nothing better than this. And I'm a man. And I've got limits to my love. But it's given me a taste of the Father's heart, the Father's love for his people, that he delights in us, that he loves us so much that he would send his son, knowing that we would kill him because he so valued relationship. He so valued intimacy with us. So what recognizing our pride does is go, yeah, I put him there, but he did it for me. And I need him. I need every bit of Jesus I can get in my life. So what do we do with our pride? James 4, it continues. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's verse 10. We'll jump back to verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And what that's saying, it's, it's not saying don't be happy, don't be joyful. What it's saying is you need to humble yourself in your humanity, recognizing that you are not it. And you need God. And that he will give great grace and great favor to the humble. So we pray, Lord Jesus, destroy our pride. The third thing I kind of noticed here is that, and this is extrapolating, but God's people know that their home is heaven, not here. And where I came to that from is Mordecai saved the king's life a few chapters ago, which is a number of years. And there's this kind of moment of delayed reward where the king recognizes him for what he's done. He gets paraded around, he gets the glory, he gets honored for the things that he did. And as Christians, we live in this state where we don't look for our reward here because our reward is not here. And it's been taught by pastors and teachers and preachers that you can have it all here and in heaven too. But that's not really what Jesus said. He said, in this life, you'll have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And in Matthew 5 and 6, throughout the, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, which is, you know, Jesus long as recorded teaching, he mentions time upon time that the reward of the believer is in heaven. It's in heaven. That if we seek reward now for the things that we've done, that we will miss out on a greater reward then. And I'll say more than that, if we look for fulfillment, and purpose and happiness here, we may get a taste of it. But ultimately, this isn't where the story ends. Because the story ends in our home, which is heaven, not here. And I think, again, this comes back to this patience thing. So we're going to bring it back to there. We're so used to getting everything now that I think even as Christians, even as those who have the Holy Spirit in us, even as those who have professed that Jesus is Lord, we struggle 
to kind of really look forward with hope to heaven. Because we're fighting culture and we're fighting what is kind of what we're barraged with, this idea that we have to have it now. And I think it's hard to look to heaven because our idols get so big, our idols of satisfaction, financial stability, employment, marriage, relationships, whatever it is, those idols get so big that we can't see past them. And I think as well, we kind of have this idea where we want to really, we kind of want to intellectualize heaven. We want to know what it, what, what's there, what it's about. Is it a city? Is it a garden? Is it a bit of both? Do we go there straight away when we die? Do we go there after a while? What's it like? Will my pet be there? These are the questions people ask. We get so caught up in the kind of the what of heaven and I think we kind of do that because we miss the point of heaven. Because the, the appeal of heaven shouldn't be what's there. The appeal of heaven is who is there. The appeal of heaven is Jesus. And if heaven doesn't excite you because Jesus doesn't excite you, then I pray that he does. You need your eyes to be lifted because it's so easy to see what's in front of us. It's so easy to see what is here. But if eternity with Jesus is not something you get excited about, then I think you've missed something. And maybe life's gotten too big and too scary and too intense and, and there's too much going on that's kind of clouded all of that. And I shared this word of Adam this morning. I'm going to share it here. There's, I had this, I was praying for our young adults. And I want to extend that to everyone in the service the other night. And I was, as I was praying, I was, I was reminded of this, the parable of the sower who's sowing the seed. And there's this, there's this bit where he sows seed on ground that, and it starts to grow. And then as the seed grows, thorns and thistles and weeds grow up around the, the plant and choke it out. And I kind of had this picture of these, these flowers, sunflowers, sort of starting to pop up. And sunflowers, what they do, the way that they grow, the way they get big and bright and beautiful is they angle towards the sun. But what was happening to these sunflowers is that as they grew, these weeds, these thistles, these thorns, these things were just wrapping around them to the point where the sunflowers were pretty much indistinguishable from the things, the thorns, the thistles and the weeds that were wrapped around them. And I thought, that's a problem because the sunflowers need to know that they're sunflowers but they think they're thistles and weeds. Some of you have been so entangled in the things of this world, in maybe the things you were born in, in maybe the things that have happened to you or the, the illnesses or the, the anxieties or, or identity or even pride, that you're so wrapped up in that thing that you can't see the sun, that you can't see Jesus. And a sunflower that can't see the sun can't really grow. 
And I thought, well, that's a problem. And as I was thinking about that problem, I was thinking, well, what would God do about that? And I was reminded of John 10 where Jesus talks about the vine and he talks about his father who is the vine dresser. And I don't think that our father in heaven is the kind of gardener that gets the roundup cannon out and shoots the garden bed and kills the thistles but also takes out the sunflowers. I don't think that's the kind of father that he is. I think he's the kind of gardener like I've got a neighbour around the road and, and sometimes I see him on his hands and knees in his front garden on the lawn with a pair of scissors and he's crawling around on his hands and knees to try and find every little thorn, every little weed, every little thing that doesn't belong there and he just snips it out and he untangles it and throws away the weed. I think that's the kind of gardener that our father is. The kind of gardener that takes his time, that is patient, that gets right to the root of things and pulls out the root and then starts to untangle it. And that's not quick. If you want a quick fix, then you, you, know, you burn the field or you spray it with Roundup or you do something like that. But sometimes God's way is not our way. I had this picture and I had this sense that there are those of you in this room who you're, you're hearing that and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's me. I want to look to the sun but I feel so caught up in other things that I can't. I want to be excited about heaven. I want to be excited about the love of God. I want to be excited about the fact that I will spend eternity with my Saviour, but I'm just not. I'm apathetic and I'm tired and it's cold. Let the gardener do his work. Pulling things out hurts. So there might be some pain, there might be some time, it might take a lot of patience. But if the God of the universe would send his son to die, to endure the weight of sin so that he could know us and that we could know him, then I think he's the one who's up to the task. So Jesus ultimately is the one who is patient. Jesus ultimately is the one who is humble, humble to death. And Jesus ultimately is our home. Because the what of heaven doesn't really matter when you think about the who. Let's pray. Stand up. Let's stand. <laughs> Band, can you come up? And you might hear these things and you go, yep, okay, I've heard that kind of thing before. And I think we can be these things. I think we can be more patient and I think we can be more humble and I think we can have greater hope and excitement about heaven. But it takes God's intervention. It takes the Holy Spirit at work within us to draw us up to lift our eyes to him. So come, Holy Spirit, come. Lord Jesus, you love these people here tonight. You love them. 
more than they could know, more than we could ever comprehend. Give us the strength to start to try. And God, you are so patient. You endured the cross and you rose in glory that we might know you. And then you sent us your Holy Spirit to dwell in us so that we would never be alone. And Lord, there's people here tonight that are lonely and there's people here tonight that are struggling. There's people here tonight that feel so wrapped up by life that they can't see you and they don't even know if they ever will. Father, tonight, would you move powerfully by your Holy Spirit? Would we see you? Would we know your presence? Would you get to the heart and the depths of the things that wrap us up? And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would remove them, that you would bring healing, that you would bring wholeness, that you would bring great peace, that you would bring joy, that you would turn our mourning into dancing, that those who are apathetic would be filled with your zeal, that those who have felt down for so long, Lord, that you would just lift them up. For those that struggle to even have hope for tomorrow, let alone the future, let alone heaven, Father, just give them a glimpse of your glory. Give them a taste of how good you are. Jesus, you love us so much. Church, he loves you so, so much. He will meet you where you're at tonight. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, touch our hearts. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.